The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. The Gospel of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we have sung, speak, O Lord, as we come to you, that we might receive the food of your holy word. Father, correct, rebuke, train, and equip us for righteousness that we might become fully obedient. Father, through your word as you speak, would you renew our minds this morning? And we ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. Please, why don't you take your seats. If you live for any extended length of time in this world, and by that I mean more than five years, you will know that this life is filled with problems, all kinds of problems. And you might be here this morning and you've worked out that there are few, if any, assurances in this life, which of course is why the vast majority of us in this room have insurance of one form of another, some even insurance upon insurance. And those problems that we face, suffering, is what Paul has been addressing in Romans 8. We learned last week in verses 28 to 30 that the plan of God is eternal and wonderful and unstoppable. Now in this last section of Romans 8, Paul raises four questions. And these questions almost seem to be set within the context of landing in God's courtroom. As far as Paul is concerned, the most serious situation that any human being could ever find themselves in. And these four questions receive four perfect answers. Paul is looking here at all the problems in the world and all the sufferings of believers, but he is also thinking of the promises of God. Uh, Many of you might know or be familiar of the story of David and Goliath. People usually uh, come to that story and turn it into some kind of story of small beats big, as if David is the hero of that story. And we're often encouraged to slay our Goliaths 
as though we are meant to be David from the story. But if you read the event carefully, you will see that David is looking at the enemy of God, at Goliath, at the Philistines, the problems of the moment as they present themselves in his very real, ordinary, everyday life. But his mind, his mind is on the character and the promises of God. He thinks to himself, how can God be slandered? In his mind, he knows that God has promised this land to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and to their descendants. His mind is on the victory of God and that is why he goes into battle with one eye on the problem and one eye on the promises and yet the promises far outweigh the problem that presents. And so it is with the biblical writers, in this case Paul, they are not ignorant of the real, ordinary, everyday life that you and I live all the time. They are fully aware of the problems but Paul's mind is focused here on the promises. And so look with me in your Bibles at verse 31. Hope they have them there in front of you. If you don't, you can grab one from the seat there. You can have it on your phone. I don't mind, but just have it in front of you. Look at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? Uh, the, these things includes everything that has come before in all of chapter 8. It might even be that Paul's thinking back to the beginning of this section in chapter 5 when he says uh, these things. Just to jog your own memory, these things in chapter 8, verse 17. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we might share in his glory. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Or verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. These are the things that Paul has in mind in verse 31. Verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Even the subject of predestination is bound up in what shall we say to all these things. Here, Paul lays out his argument following with these rhetorical questions, and he challenges anybody and everybody in heaven or on earth or under the earth to answer them, to deny the truth with which they contain. But we will see that there is no answer, for no one and nothing can harm the people whom God has foreknown and predestined and called and justified and glorified. So that if we are to understand the significance of these questions, it is essential to grasp why each question remains unanswered. So my points this morning are four in number, and they go according to the questions. So, number one, question one, who can be against us? Verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? And you might well answer, uh, plenty of people, plenty of people could be against us. Plenty of people could be against me. People that are friends with me, people that are not friends with me, uh, people that are my enemies, people that don't believe what I believe, people that don't hold to what I hold to. There are many people that could be against me, and not just people, there are forces and powers and, and spiritual powers. They could be against me. 
But the answer is that they cannot succeed because God is for us. Again, I don't know your situation. I don't know the kind of week you've had. You don't know the kind of week that I've had. But I do know that no matter what you are facing, if you are in Christ, God is for you. I still haven't quite worked out how I feel about tattoos. But I do say this, if I think that if I ever did get one, I would get a gigantic sleeve down my whole arm with the centerpiece, this verse, God is for us. So that I could look down every day and be reminded that God is for me if I am in Christ. And I also want to say that if the gospel that you heard promised you an easy life and a victorious life and an escape from all your problems in this world and you look at your life and it has not worked out like that and you are feeling confused and confounded and frustrated and you think that you're actually ready to just give up, this message is for you because you need to know that God is for you. The Bible never makes any false promises. The Bible does not promise that if you come to Jesus, all of your problems in this life will suddenly disappear. We become confused on a point of order, for the Bible promises suffering in this life and glory in the life to come. When we die or when Jesus returns, yes, we will finally live the victorious Christian life, but it happens then, and so we dwell not in the new heavens and the new earth, the home of righteousness, but in this fallen creation where we will, like our Lord, face suffering. The Bible does, however, promise that in this life you are secure in Christ and you always will be and that one day you will be with Christ and you will be like Christ and so you do have hope and you can take heart. And the reason, of course, for all of this is because look at verse 32. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God did not spare his own son. If God gave us his most precious possession, you can be absolutely sure that he will not hold back all things that are needed for life and godliness, all things that are needed to achieve his good purposes, our ultimate good, the salvation of our souls. Let me try and illustrate this in two ways. Uh, this morning, this week, early one morning, when my children had all piled into the same car to drive off to school with my daughter, uh, she phoned me while she was driving, at which point I was horrified. And I, it was something relatively superfluous, and I said to her, my darling, you have my three most precious possessions in all of the world in that car. Can I ask you to please be careful when you drive? And I say this to her very regularly, not because she's a bad driver, but because they are my most precious possessions, and they're often in the same car. How much more with God? How much more is God's son, Jesus Christ, his most precious possession? And if God did not hold him back, but gave him for us, will he not also give us all things? This is his promise. We, we read this verse and we think it should probably go something like, if God, didn't give, if God did not uh, stop from giving up his own son, we should give up everything for God. But it doesn't say that, does it? It says, if God did not spare his own son, will he not also with him graciously give us all things. It's like if somebody was prepared to give you a kidney, do you not think that they would also give you a dollar to buy yourself a Coke from the vending machine? 
Of course they would. Question number two, who will accuse us? Verse 33, who will literally be brought in to give evidence against us? And again, we would probably answer, well, plenty of people. It would not take much to get a list of people together who could speak against me. Would someone who does not like you uh, not be able to arrange a whole queue, small or long? Queue is just another way of saying line in the rest of the world. A line, small or long, of folk that you have hurt, that you have sinned against, who could bring you into great danger under huge accusations. Of course, we could all put a list like that together. My family would probably be at the front of that line. And as we sit in the dock and listen, we would begin to nod our head and say, yes, yes, and agree, that is exactly right. But then in verse 33, God speaks, and he calls out, not guilty. And he explains that this person gave their case over to Christ, that Jason Palacio gave his case over to Christ. And when he gave his case over to Christ, Christ became my substitute, took my punishment for all the thoughts, words, deeds, and failures. And so the person who gave their case over to Christ was in that substitution given pardon and forgiveness and grace upon grace. Who will accuse you? It is God who justifies. Who is against us? It is God who gave up his own son. Question number three, who will condemn us? Verse 34, Paul suddenly ramps it up. He gets more serious. Who will sentence you to judgment and to hell? And again, I think plenty of people would love to write us off. God himself is able to bring us under this judgment. But look at verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Let me just pause there for a second. I, do, I hope you've noticed when you read through these questions, you'd think that they would begin with what? What can be against us? What shall bring any charge? But it's not a question of what, it is who. Who, who, who? Who in this life? Not what in this life, who in this life? But then God answers with himself. It is Christ Jesus who is the one who died. It is Christ Jesus who was raised. It is Christ Jesus who is at the right hand. It is Christ Jesus who indeed is interceding for us. You know, our gospel reading in John chapter 17 uh, was Jesus' prayer for his followers. Romans picks up this idea, not just that the Spirit intercedes, but that the Son himself is seated at the right hand. He's died, he's risen, he's ascended, and now where is he? At God's right hand, with God's ear? interceding for you and for me. Hebrews chapter seven picks up the same idea that our great high priest is interceding for us. And if Jesus is there interceding for us, will he not preserve us all the way through so that condemnation is a thing of the past? Condemnation landed on Christ, and so it cannot land on the believer. There's this really interesting story in the Old Testament. Uh, it takes place in Numbers 22 to 24. You might want to go home and read it this afternoon over lunch or at dinner, Numbers 22 to 24, where the king of Moab, whose name is Balak, wants to curse the people of God. This is between them leaving Egypt and them arriving in the promised land. It's during their wanderings in the wilderness. And so he employs a prophet named Balaam to speak against 
the people of God, to speak against the nation of Israel. And three times, Balaam tries to do this. Uh, Balak, uh, Balak offers him a whole lot of money. Balaam kind of resists at first, and then God speaks to Balaam. Balaam kind of goes and does it. And every time that Balaam opens his mouth, instead of speaking curse on God's people, he can only speak blessing. And Balak, of course, is furious and said, I told you to curse them, you bless them. Balaam does it a second time, only utters blessing. He does it a third time, he only utters blessing. And it is a wonderful reminder. Numbers 24, verse 10, Balak's anger was kindled against Balaam and he struck his hands together. And Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies and behold, you have blessed them these three times. It's a wonderful reminder to us that if we, that, that, we, that the curse of God fell on Christ. And because the curse of God fell on Christ, it cannot fall on us. Question number four, who shall separate us? Paul has dealt with those who would be against us, those who would accuse us, those who would condemn us. But imagine being separated from the love of Christ. And Paul lists uh, seven terrible experiences that may make it look as though Christ's love has left the building. Verse 35, shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or the sword, shall any of those things separate us from the love of Christ? And if you're not able to step back and see the big picture, you will think that the love of Christ has been taken away and that you have been deserted by the love of Christ. For here is, uh, in an ever-increasing manner, are the situations that we find ourselves in, in everyday life. But Paul says that it is impossible. For once your faith has been placed in Christ, his love is with you forever. There will be times in our lives and we are tempted to ask, where is the love of Christ? And Paul quotes from Psalm 44. It's a great psalm. If you don't read Numbers, read the whole of Psalm 44. And he says, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. Just read that slowly. Just look at it again. For your sake we are being killed all the day long. In other words, the whole day you're being killed over and over and over and over. It's like you die a thousand deaths every single day. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. It's an amazing illusion that Paul's giving us there because it finds its, its grounds both in the sacrifice of Isaac in Genesis 22, as well as in the fulfillment of the sacrifice of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he's saying our identity is bound up in Christ that as he suffered, so do we also share in his sufferings, so that we will too one day share in his glory. God's people have always faced opposition, and God's people will continue until the Lord Jesus comes back to face opposition. It will be as though we are killed all day long. But then Paul goes on to verse 37 and says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, I've been here for long enough for you to know that I only ever use one Greek or Hebrew word in any given sermon. So here's your Greek word for today. It's the word for more than conquerors. Paul seems to coin a phrase 
And it's literally Hyper Nike. Hyper Nike. You know, Nike, like the shoes and the clothes and all that stuff. Hyper Nike. Uh, it's the idea of uh, being a victor, a victory, of being victorious. You are more than triumphant. You are more than a victor. You are more than a conqueror. In the midst of ongoing opposition, we are hyper Nike. In the midst of suffering, the person who is in Christ is hyper Nike. Can someone who is going through suffering still be victorious? Paul says yes. Can someone who is being attacked still be victorious? Paul says yes. Can someone who is being persecuted uh, uh, still be victorious? Paul says, yes. Your circumstances might give the impression that you are or have been conquered, but as far as God is concerned, you are and you will conquer. And so let me just leave you with one picture. In the same way that uh, our 1 Corinthians 15 sermon from a year ago, I reminded you every time you look at a tree or a seed, I want you to think of your resurrection body. Every time you see the Nike logo, which is a lot in America, I want you to remind yourself that you are hyper Nike more than victorious, that you are more than a conqueror. So whether you're putting on your running outfit or you're putting on your fashion trainers or your running shoes or whatever it might be, or you're walking down the greenway and you see that tick, don't think, just do it. Think I am hyper Nike. I am more than a conqueror through him who loved us. You are more than that because of the one who loved you. And it's really interesting, there's three references to love in this section, verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 39, uh, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God. And then right there sandwiched in the middle, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. All of this because you have been loved by God in Christ Jesus. We're reminded in Romans 5 that God has demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so Paul is always taking us back to the cross. It's not that Christ loves us, it's that he loved us and gave his life for us. He didn't just choose us, he didn't just call us, he died for us. The answer is always bound up in the death of Christ on the cross for us. That, friends, is where a Romans 8 confidence, a more than conqueror mindset, Paul's ability to be convinced and persuaded because the cross guarantees the future. Paul's persuaded by the facts here. And he finishes with a set of possibilities in verses 38 and 39. I am sure, I am persuaded, I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels or rulers, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. We begin this section with having been justified and brought into peace with God, and we end in Romans 8 at the end of the chapter with no separation and home with God. Friends, God has unstoppable plans. This we know. He loves us with a never stopping, never giving up, always and forever loves. And he deals with our fear and our suffering, telling us to look back to all that God has already done for us in the cross. In the cross.
And so let me leave you with just a little bit of a mind bender this morning as you go out into the week. Is it more important, is it more important that we persevere in our faith or that we know that we trust in a God who will preserve us until the end? And just so you don't have to think too hard, it is more important that we place our faith in a God who will preserve us, who has done all of these things for us, who guarantees our future because of what he has done in the past. Now yes, the Bible makes much of the need for us to persevere as the saints. And we do strive to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but it is God who works in us to will and to act. And so when your life looks like Jesus' love has left the building, you need to remember that it is God who is preserving you and who will preserve you and who will bring you home. That is what we say to all of these things. God is for us. No one is against us. No one can accuse us. No one can condemn us. And no one can separate us from his love. For we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Would you bow with me and let's pray. Our Lord God and Heavenly Father, please would you remind us, refresh us, and equip us with the eternal security that we have when we are united in repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for your plan that goes from eternity to eternity. We thank you for your love, for its depth, for its height. And we pray, Lord, that you would make us joyful as we live out the Christian life, that we would see you in our mind calling out, you have finished, you have paid, so that we can rejoice. And may we go through this life knowing that we have one great security, that we have one great assurance when there are no others, and that is Christ's loving grip on his people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.